also been personally challenged each and every week with the text that we're about to study. Has anybody else been challenged by James? I mean, I hope that you have been, and I hope that you love the book of James and you welcome the challenge. We titled this sermon series, Mature Faith. I think maybe a better title could be Maturing Faith. But that comes from James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, which I'm going to read one last time. We read it like three weeks in a row back in August and early September. But just as a way of a reminder, James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, says, My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, or some translations say perseverance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be, what's that next word? Mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That's been our key verse, especially as we started out with this sermon series, and that's why we're calling it Mature Faith, is because James does not want us to remain complacent. He doesn't want us to be complacent or stagnant in our faith. Now, one of the cool things about preparing this sermon series and going through the whole thing is I didn't do it alone. I, I shared the preparation of the sermon series with two other preachers. One is Jared Baggett, who is Shay Morris, our, our children's minister's dad. He's, he's been preaching at the Lamar Avenue Church of Christ in Paris, Texas. And uh, Lane Brown at the Chandler Street Church of Christ nearby in Kilgore. In June, we decided that we would preach James together starting this fall. And then I went on sabbatical, so we kind of sketched it out before I went on sabbatical. We read through it the month of July, and then in August we started uh, having a few Zoom sessions together as we were preparing this together. And I have a little video that kind of gives you an idea of how some of those Zoom sessions worked, and if there's no volume on that, that's okay. I can just kind of explain it to you. Uh, Early on, this was like maybe the first Zoom session that we had, we would find ourselves getting very distracted. And you may see here in the video how we got so distracted because we were talking about sketching it out, what the calendar would be like, and then, and then we would get distracted, like flexing into the camera. So anyways, um, we decided after that day we would stop Zooming and we would just have phone conversations. The volume's even better if you had volume, but anyways... Uh, That gives you an idea of what it's like to plan a sermon series with two other preachers who are in your peer group. (laughs) This is what we do when we're at the office. Uh, So after this this Zoom session, we started calling each other. And, um, you know, most of the days, you know, Tuesday, Monday, Wednesday, whatever it may be, we'd call each other, hey, what do you think about this text? How is it speaking to you? What direction are you going with your sermon? And then I would may ask, should I share this story or not share this story? We were able to bounce these things off of each other. We were able to prepare this together. And then on Sunday nights or Monday mornings, I could go listen to their sermon, preaching the same text and see how God led them in that. It's been a shared experience. And I would say the same is about our faith. As we mature in our faith, I'm reminded that it's a shared experience. We're not supposed to mature and grow in our faith in isolation. God plans for us to grow in our faith together with others. And one of the ways that we we grow together is we share each other's burdens. So if you think about it, when somebody comes to you and says, man, I'm having a rough patch in life. 
I'm struggling. I'm about to have a surgery. I've been in the hospital. I've been really sick. I just lost a loved one. Whatever it may be, somebody's going through trouble in life. What do we typically say to them? I'll be praying for you. Or you're in my prayers. Now, how often do we say that? It almost becomes a slogan in our culture today. Hey, I'll be praying for you. I'm praying. But how often do we actually pray for people when we say that we're going to pray for them? Now, you don't have to raise your hand and admit it, but I'm sure there's been times where we tell somebody we're going to pray for them and then we, we fail to do that. So I've started praying for people like on the spot. If I tell them through a text, I'm going to pray for you, that means I've just prayed for you generally because I don't want to lie about that. But when we say that we're going to pray for others, what do we expect to happen in prayer? What do we hope that God is going to do, not only to listen to our prayers, but how is God going to move? How is God going to act? Uh, This is a calendar I have up here with me, and inside this calendar is for the year 2022. A lot of your names are written on this calendar. I know you can't see it, but this is the best object lesson I can give you. So Bryce um, and Robin Hinton, where are you guys at? You're right back over here. So last December, uh, Bryce came to our home and surprised me with this calendar. And Bryce and Robin had organized this, and a lot of you probably are aware of it. Uh, And they organized a year of prayer and fasting for me, which was surprising to me. Uh, I was very thankful. I was humbled. I was appreciative of it. And in some ways, I admitted to them, you know, I was a little embarrassed because that's a lot of attention and focus on me, and I don't normally share a lot of prayer requests with people. But as the year has gone on, I have learned to embrace this, and I am thankful for this. I am thankful for Bryce and Robin for organizing something like this, and I know I need the prayers. I need it. Somebody asked me recently, okay, people have been praying for you and fasting for you for almost a year now. Have you noticed any difference? That's a difficult question. I could say concretely there's two things. One is I started the year thinking that I was going to have to have back surgery, And now I'm up here walking around, not sitting down on a stool. I didn't have surgery. I'm feeling a lot better. So I praise God. Thank you for the prayers for that. I feel like God has helped me physically. But also, another thing that I can see as an answered prayer is I haven't lost my sanity yet. And I... I know that's going to sound funny, but I think in ministry, like that is true. I've been able to maintain a little bit of sanity because of your prayers. So thank you for praying for me. And as we look at James chapter 5, I know that was kind of a long intro, but James 5, verse 13 through 20, James ends this letter with a plea to pray. Everything in James has been very practical. It's been about action, about putting your faith into action. And now he ends this letter by saying you need to be in prayer. In verse 13, Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Suffering and cheerful. Uh, We're going to have a lot of that in this life because life is a roller coaster. So that means we probably should be doing a lot of praying and a lot of praising. When you think of those two words, I'm reading today from a New Revised Standard Version, suffering. If you're suffering, you should pray. If you're cheerful, sing songs of praise. We think of suffering and being cheerful or being happy as two opposite things. Like they're on two ends of the extreme there. Like suffering and cheerful do not go together. But remember the verse that I read to start this lesson off. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, what? 
when? Whenever you face trials of many kinds. It's a bold way to start the letter, but according to James, yeah, there is a way that going through trials, troubles, suffering, whatever you want to call it, that there is a way to experience joy through all that. One reason, for, according to James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, is because through that, through perseverance, God is doing something in us to mature us. That's the paradox of trials. But another one of those paradoxes is when we suffer, when we go through trials, when we have troubles in life, what do we do? Well, it reminds us that we can't do this on our own. That our own willpower is not going to get us where we need to be. So suffering leads us back to the arms of God. It leads us to prayer. Maybe when things are going well for us, prayer may be one of the least important things. But when we're struggling, prayer becomes one of the most important things. If anybody's suffering, pray. If anybody's cheerful or happy, sing songs of praise. And we're going to do a lot of both of those things. And then he says, are any among you sick? In verse 14. Literally, probably what that means, are are you sick or somebody who's bedridden or suffering some kind of chronic life-threatening illness? And if you're sick, he says, here's what you should do. Call on the elders of the church and have them and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. One of the the roles of our shepherds, of our elders, is to pray for those who are sick. We can't just expect them to always know, so this is a request. Request for the elders to come pray over you. We get that part, but the anointing with oil in verse 14 seems kind of strange. Because we, we don't often anoint people with oil, and if you do, that's your thing. But in the ancient Mediterranean world, that is something that they did. In the the Christian sense, anointing somebody with oil is a way to symbolically set them apart for God's special attention and care. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 13, when Jesus sent His apostles out on one of His missionary journeys, they were casting out demons, they were healing the sick, and they were anointing the sick with oil. So it was a common practice back then. And James is saying, okay, if you're suffering, pray. If you're happy, sing songs of praise. If you're sick, call for the elders to come and to pray over you and anoint you with oil. And then in verse 15, he says, the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Well, that last part in verse 15, praise God for that. Anybody who has committed sins, forgiveness is possible through Jesus. So praise God for that. But that first part of verse 15 can be a little puzzling or misleading. I don't know. I don't know the right word to say there, but we read that and we think, wait a minute, haven't there been plenty of times where we have prayed for people who are sick and they didn't get better? And they remained sick or maybe they eventually died? So why does James say something like this? You know, Jesus said the same type of language. Like, if you pray in faith, your prayers will be answered. Well, earlier this year, I preached on uh, the parable of the persistent widow from Luke chapter 18. I titled that lesson, How Often Should I Pray? And I talked in that lesson about, you know, for one, God's timing is different than our timing. We have a very limited perspective from our human vantage point. And one of the things I didn't say in that sermon, but if you go back to James chapter 4, he talks about God's will and saying, Lord willing, we will go do this or that. There's so many things that we don't understand when we pray. And we may not always get exactly what we want the way we want it. But we're told to pray and to keep praying even if we don't have all the answers. 
Jesus prayed in the garden and He said, Father, if You're willing, take this cup from Me. But Jesus still had to step forward towards the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul had what we just know is a thorn in his flesh, a thorn in his side, and he prayed three times that God would remove it. And God didn't remove it, but God gave him his grace. And he says, my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough for you. We don't always have all the answers, but we're told to keep praying. Because we trust and we know that God is listening and that God is moving when we pray. So I'm going to keep on praying. Prayer sometimes can remove the sickness. It can remove the affliction or it can help us endure it. If you're sick, you should be praying. If you're suffering, you should be praying. And then in verse 16, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. In the middle of this teaching on prayer, he starts talking about confession. Confessing your sins to each other. And I'll go ahead and tell you, I'll confess this to you, is that I think that confession is one of our least practiced biblical commands or biblical statements. We are a people who do not confess sins to each other very often. And maybe it's because our culture kind of shames us, and when we make ourselves vulnerable and we share with somebody a sin... Uh, We feel embarrassed, we feel ashamed, we feel so guilty, somebody may use it against us, and maybe we've had a bad experience in the past, I'm not sure. Maybe we just have too much pride, but truthfully, we're not a confessing people. The times in my life where I have experienced confession and prayer most consistently and powerfully, one came my, uh, my second senior year in college, I got to have two senior years, so my second senior year... It was about 6 to 12 guys. We gathered together every Wednesday at 5 o'clock. We met in the living room of the house that I was living in. There was no more than 12 guys each week, so we kept it small intentionally. And here is the simple concept. I didn't even come up with this, but I loved it. Is we'd sit in the living room, chairs, couches, whatever, just kind of sit in a circle-ish fashion. And we'd go around the room and we'd share our struggles, we would share prayer requests, and if need be, we would confess sins. Everything was supposed to be confidential. And then we would go around the room after we all had a chance to talk. And one week you may pray for the person who's sitting to the right of you. The next week you may pray for the person sitting to the left of you. So by the end of it, everybody has said a prayer for somebody else and everybody has been prayed for. It would last maybe 45 minutes to an hour total and then we would be on our way. But it gave us an avenue. It gave us a place to confess sins to each other and to pray for each other. And as time went on, that was a powerful experience. Something as simple as that. And it led to accountability because the next week when we'd meet together, we could check in on each other. And if there was a sin that we were struggling with, a temptation that we were giving into, we could ask each other about that. I took that same concept, just a small group of guys, and I took it with me to the Northridge Church of Christ when I was in Mount Pleasant for several years. But in 2016, I requested... You know, permission from the elders, they said go for it. And on Wednesday nights during Bible class, I would take about five to eight guys with me in my office. We'd sit in a circle. We did the same thing. We would share. We'd confess if we needed to. We would share our struggles, our prayer requests. We'd pray for somebody and we'd be prayed for. And every week, our main passage that we read was James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Week after week, I read this passage. And I was like, I'm not trying to force you to confess sins because that's not the purpose of this. 
But if you need to confess, then confess, and we're going to pray for each other that we may be healed. And it's not about a physical healing. Yeah, that may be a part of it. But I think the language James is using and the way he shifts here is he's talking about a spiritual healing. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. We have an enemy. And we need to be praying for each other so that you may be healed. And maybe the healing is relational. James tells us to confess sins, to pray for each other. And as we do that, we have, there's a bonding aspect to prayer. It's a shared experience. We don't pray alone. Yes, we may go to our homes and pray alone, but I think one of the things that James is wanting to accomplish through this is to get us to pray together. Just like I told you, I shared this sermon series with two other guys, so I wasn't just doing this alone. The Christian faith, the maturing faith, is meant to be shared, a shared faith. Prayer is meant to be shared. Verse, the end of that verse, verse 16, he says, the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Do you want to know what that means? Uh, we don't have time today, so we won't get into it. I'll just tell you, it's probably lead into Elijah, the next verse. I, I thought you would really want to know, but I guess you're okay with not knowing. So let's move on to verse 17 and 18. Elijah was a human just like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. I think the prayer of the righteous person was just a way to lead into this Elijah example. I mean, that's a quick synopsis of 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. But I think the purpose of, this, of James sharing this is he's saying Elijah was a human just like us. Prayer is not just for the spiritual elite, whatever that may be. Prayer is not just for church leaders or special people. God has called all of us to be prayer warriors. The examples that he uses of, from the Hebrew Scriptures in the book of James, he uses Abraham and Rahab in chapter 2, and in chapter 5 he uses the example of Job and Elijah. Pillars of our faith that we read about in the Old Testament and I think the point James is making is we share the same faith that they have in the same God. So we should be a praying people just like Elijah prayed. He's human just like us. The letter ends in kind of an odd way, I think. There's no goodbyes. There's no thank you for listening along. This is just how James ends. It almost seems abrupt. Verse 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another... You should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Uh, earlier this year, I had the opportunity, uh, I'll call it opportunity, to coach my son's first and second grade flag football team. Now, I will say it was great because I got to bond with my son in that way, and I enjoyed that. But I'll also say... If you want to be humbled in life, try coaching a first and second grade flag football team. One of my roles, in fact, my main role as assistant coach was to call the plays. The head coach did it the first game, and then she said, hey, from now on, Coach Jody's going to call the plays in the huddle. And I quickly figured out why she didn't want to do it. So I got in the huddle, and it wasn't just like I'd call play, they'd go run it. These are first and second graders. Most of them have never played football before. So I was very specific, like you play receiver, you play running back, you run this direction, you hand the ball off to this person. Sometimes we were in the huddle for two minutes. 
And after I'd break the huddle, the kids would run to the line of scrimmage, you know, and they're ready to go. Almost every time I was standing here and the ref may say, hey, you only have five players, not six. And I'd look over and I won't tell you any names, but, the, you know, Christian would know some of these kids. They would just kind of wander off. Like the play's over here and they've just like walked off over here. And so every play, I'd have to go and gently grab them by the shoulders and guide them back to the line of scrimmage. You're playing receiver? Just run in that direction. What am I doing? Just forget it. You know, that's kind of how the play normally went. But we had a lot of wandering kids. And we had to guide them back. Okay, so James ends this letter by saying, if anybody has wandered from the truth, that's the image that comes to mind of these kids just wandering off, needed to be guided back. But what does he mean by anybody who's wandered from the truth? Does he mean anybody who has lost their faith, no longer believes? Does he mean somebody who claims to have faith but has no action, like he talks about in James chapter 2? Is he talking about somebody who has wandered from the faith community, who has wandered from the church? Is he talking about somebody who is intentionally living in sin and has wandered away from his Christian brothers and sisters because he doesn't want to have to face the sin that he's living in? I'm not real sure. James doesn't tell us what he means by wandering from the truth. So again, for the second time this year, I will appeal back to uh, last year if you went to the Four Fields disciple-making training that... Doc Turk and Rodney Britt put on for us. One of the things that they said over and over is think about somebody who is far from God. Whatever that would mean. Maybe they've never become a Christian or maybe they've wandered from the truth. They are just far from God. And we probably all know people, maybe you are that person who is far from God. Somebody who has wandered from the truth. I think that's a good way of describing that. He said if you've wandered from the truth, if you bring them back, you bring back somebody, if you guide them by the shoulders or whatever, and you bring them back, then you, he says, will save the sinner's soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, that sounds really important, but James doesn't tell us how to bring somebody back. This is in the context of prayer, so I'm assuming that James means bringing somebody back is going to include lots of prayer. I've heard Randy Harris share this example a few times in, in some of his sermons over the years, but uh, when Randy, he, you know, he's kind of up there in age now, he's been a professor for a long time, but in his younger years when he first got hired as a preacher, uh, the story he told was that the elders gave him a short job description. There were two things on it. One was to preach each Sunday... So whatever it takes to get that sermon ready, show up and preach. And the other thing on his job description was to pray for each member of the church each week. Now, I think there was only 100 to 200 members, so it was manageable. He's like, okay, I guess I can do that. He said he first got the church directory, and each week he would just flip through the church directory, look at faces and names, say a short prayer for him. But he said as time went on, as he started to get to know these people and he started to want to know, hey, what specifically can I pray for you about? And he said what he realized is that as you pray for people, that leads you to pursue them. As he was praying for people each week, it, like, it's like the Holy Spirit led him in. I need to go check on that person, see how they're doing, see how that struggle is, see how that surgery went. We could go on and on, but we, if we're praying for somebody, more than likely it's going to lead us to them. Somebody's wandered from the truth. Bring them back. 
How do we do that? Well, it begins with prayer, and prayer is always a part of that. And I'm going to do something a little strange to start to wrap up this lesson. But I want to ask you to just sit in silence for a moment. And maybe somebody has already come to mind when you think about somebody who's far from God or somebody who's wandered from the truth. Or maybe you just need to sit and think for a moment. I'm going to look at my timer, and I'm going to bow my head. I'm going to ask that you just pray privately. If you can think of a name right now of somebody in your life that has wandered wandered from the truth, spend a few seconds, 30 seconds, praying for them, and then I will say a prayer. Father, we know that You are the Good Shepherd, that You go after the lost sheep. Lord, as we think about whoever it may be in our lives, our families, friend circles, people that maybe have wandered from the truth who are far from You, as maybe, hopefully, a lot of names have been lifted up before You right now in these last 30 seconds, and so I pray collectively for them for whoever they may be, that you will put people in their lives, experiences in their, in their lives, or maybe thoughts into their minds that will help them to turn and come back towards you, Father. And I pray that you would show us, as your followers, how we can reach and pursue those who have wondered. And show us, Father, how we can help bring them back to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I hope that you have somebody in mind that you prayed for and that you will continue to pray for. And I'll say this, we can't force somebody to come back to the truth. We can't make somebody go against their will. It has to be their decision. But I believe James wants us to be praying about that. We have talked about what a mature faith looks like uh, these last three months. In the very first sermon I did, I gave you a snapshot of the entire book of James and what a mature faith looks like. A mature faith is somebody who endures trials and perseveres through them with patience. A mature faith is somebody who, when they are tempted to sin, does not blame God, does not blame anyone else, but looks within themselves. A mature faith is somebody who prays for and pursues wisdom. A mature faith is somebody who does not show favoritism. A mature faith is somebody who learns to control their words, their speech. A mature faith is somebody who doesn't just claim to believe, but puts their faith into action. And I'll add one final layer to that today. A mature faith is somebody who prays effectively for others. So may we be a people who, who we pray, not only individually, but we pray together. We, we pray for those who are sick among us. We confess our sins to each other. We may find somebody to confess sins to and pray for each other so that we may be healed. May we be people who pray for those who have wandered from the truth. And this morning, if any of that describes you, if you're sick, maybe you need to come up here and be prayed for. If you need to confess sins, maybe you come up here, maybe you find somebody to confess to. If you are far from God, if you have wandered from the truth, maybe we can help you 
come home today. However we can help you, come find one of us. Let's stand and keep singing. Bring Christ your